This is episode 15 of the Brilliant Podcast. Welcome. stories are just variants of the same story. Good beats evil, cowboys and Indians, prophets and loss. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because the consequences on our imagination and our capacity to be more with each other. The Brilliant Podcast attempts to tell stories about the brilliant ones, the ones who live human-sized lives that may seem larger than life, the ones who dream beyond recognition, the ones who are satisfied not answering every question that critics ask, just living with the contradictions. This is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, or the inverted, but otherwise identical, stories of the radical milieu. I'm your host, Eric Horn, joined by co-host Bellamy, and in the background, our sound engineer, Roy Burton. So, uh, this week, I guess we're revisiting the theme of imagination, when we're going to talk specifically about imagination in the context of um, this article in the news, Black Seed, so, so obviously we're going to talk, be talking a little bit about the Black Seed periodical, which again, you can get for, more, for very cheap from the Little Black Heart website. And if you can find us in person, you can get a copy for free. So the the story we're going to talk about is um, uh, this great article by Gerald Visner that sort of consumes the second half of the uh, periodical. And um, anyways, we'll get into more details there. We're also going to talk a little bit about the news and um, some listener feedback. So did you want to start things off by talking about the Anarchist News Topic of the yeah, Week? Yeah. yeah, so the Anarchist News Topic of the Week, which I'm noticing we have been leaning on a bit, but I actually think it's a good thing to lean on because it's a way to have other voices present, even if they are disembodied internet voices that are double disembodied because we're also talking about them. Um, and to summarize the Topic of the Week, it was about identity and whether identity in the sense of one's affiliation with various racial groups, ethnic groups, age groups, class groups, and so forth, is a meaningful, important thing for anarchists to embrace and recognize and respect, or whether it's something that is to be rejected. And it's something I, myself, in the course of being radicalized, have definitely gone back and forth on. And so I do think it's a rich topic. So to summarize the questions here, 
Um, how can we talk about identity in interesting and helpful ways? Is it possible to use this term and some others along the same lines in public without being misunderstood intentionally or not? Then there are other words. Then are there other words that are still useful for those who criticize identity? What is a better model to address unfair or inappropriate treatment in this world? Is there a critical anarchist position beyond or different from Stirner? Yeah, I mean, these are great questions. Um, where do you want to start? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think my my own little story with this was that I, you know, I started to get radicalized in my late teens, and I wasn't really familiar with the way that identity was talked about in a lot of radical circles in North America until I went to college, and um, and then I was totally bombarded with it on campus, and it was almost impossible to have conversations about politics that didn't really quickly lead into this kind of thing. And so I think I ended up with this kind of maybe short-sighted, but instinctual sort of revulsion toward it because I felt like it was making our conversations really repetitive and it didn't seem to launch things in interesting directions. And I saw lots of grandstanding. And then, of course, it, I would be remiss not to say that I'm sure part of the reaction was the fact that because of who I am and how I appear to people, I was you know, continually dismissed or excluded from certain kinds of conversations. Um, and so I, I developed a kind of revulsion toward it. And then um, moving to the Bay, I, I had the same kind of thing where I was totally in those circles where this is the main thing that gets talked about. And so I tried to reconcile myself to it and realized that it, it maybe was my short-sightedness that was um, keeping me out of things. But then I actually saw, um, over time, even worse sorts of conversations happening than the ones that were on campus that, that really seemed to lead to dead ends and seemed to lead almost necessarily to a, a politic that seeks some sort of reproachment with civilization as a whole and merely wants to move the pieces around. Um, and so I, I, in response to the, the very particular query that the A News position or the A News question is proposing, I obviously I think to people who know me do embrace the the more or less Sternarian position, which I think was fleshed out really well in the Against Identity Politics piece that we talked about. Um, in that we, what we're doing is placing particulars, placing real things, reference into a set, and then treating the set as more real. Than those particulars. I want to hear what you have to say, and then I have another query for you. Yeah, I guess uh, I might start at a different place here, because what you're talking about is a particular creature that I feel comfortable calling identity politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, my attitude towards identity politics it's is different. different than my sure. my relationship with identity. Sure. If I want to know a person. I want to know about their identity. I want to know about their story. And you really can't tell your story without sort of falling into the categories that you sort of alluded to uh, early on. And part of the problem, when I think about the context you're talking about in the university or in the streets of Oakland, <laughs> is that um, by and large, I'm not that interested in getting to know the people mm -hmm. um, at the university or mm -hmm. on the streets of Oakland. And maybe perhaps that's because most of those people, when you meet them, they begin your your meeting 
in that sort of language of categories. Mm-hmm. I'm a X Y Z, and or they start their essays with the sure. writing as a right from from a position that is conflated with an uh, with an identity, mm-hmm. which the you know as soon as you sort of see the world from inside one of these identity groups, you realize how facile mm-hmm. that sort of language is, and and I think that from inside one of those identity groups, you also see that that what we're really talking about is the difference between sort of characterizing and understanding your place in this very complicated society and wanting to arm your place in that society. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the process of being political for many people is a process of sort of taking control. I mean, this is why sort of running stories about, about college radicals is that they, you know, they grow up to manage Right. Um, to manage things, to whether it's nonprofits, NGOs, mm-hmm. or actual government agencies, mm-hmm. and so for me, th- trying to keep those distinctions is really important because, especially in the post-left world, that's very dismissive of identity politics. Which, of course, I, I share a lot of that. Uh, a lot of times, post-left people tend to speak in a, in a way that I would consider really sloppy, and I think you see that on the internet even more than in, in real life. What do you mean by sloppy? Um, in such a way that the particular stories that people have to tell about themselves in a racial, racialized, sexualized, genderized, homophobic society is... Um, post-left anarchists can be confused with conflating the stories and the people with the ideology of identity politics. So in other words, if your blackness is an important part of, of who you are, then, you, then more or less you're to be dismissed as an identity politician. Mm-hmm. And You think so? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think that knee-jerk react... that Post-left anarchists oftentimes do seem like knee-jerk reactionary jerks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is exemplified by the Black Lives Matter controversy that happened here in the Bay. You know, the, 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 the outside of the intentions of the people involved... That was a great example of of a way, like, a person is in a circle asking, basically saying, I come from a religious, i.e. church-going people, and I would like to advise anarchists that Mm. you all sound like crazy people. Mm. And and when the response to that is basically, fuck you, Mm -hmm. fuck you and your churches, Mm -hmm. that can seem a little tone deaf. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so, so that incapability incapa- of having a conversation who sort of has a different orientation and that is not necessarily malicious, mm-hmm. to me, there, there's something there that's worth pausing on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess I, the easiest way to talk about is two people with very different sets of, of vernacular trying to have a conversation and completely talking past each other. Um, I guess what <clears throat> I am thinking of maybe is that in the more circumspect post-left ways of addressing things, such as the the piece that we discussed a few weeks ago. At the beginning, I, th- I think there's some very circumspect hedging of saying, I'm not talking about all people who are politicized along these lines. I'm talking about a particular form of it. And maybe that hedging doesn't come across so much in the conversations that might be off the cuff. Hmm. But I do want to back up a minute and say that when you suggested that I was merely talking about identity politics and not identity, and that identity is important to people's stories. Maybe I'm being persnickety here, but when we talk about identity, 
I mean, what that word literally means is sameness, right? And when we hear people's stories that include snippets of identity, it's what is usually interesting about the stories is the way that they deviate from this imagined norm of identity, this imagined sameness. And so, for instance, when you talk about yourself as being an American Indian, one of the things that you say is that you have this foot in two worlds and you're living in a post-genocide world. Like That's not the identity Indian, right? That's the way that a real person deviates from this imagined concept, conceptual object identity. But it doesn't make sense to have the conversation uh, uh, without challenging sort of perceived notions mm-hmm. of, wh- of what being a native means. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a kind of marking point. Yeah, the identity is absolutely a, a marking point. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if um, I'm I'm uh, old friends with this person who's actually my teacher when I was uh, in the elementary school age age frame, who was like um, he's actually the tribal chief of his of his tribe, which is one of the one of the small tribes in Western Michigan, and uh, and and if you were to to be in the conversation where the two of us are talking about whatever it is that we're talking about the the assumptions would be very different and i guess what i'm what i'm trying to get at is is this idea that context matters an awful lot mm-hmm. and when you make political assessments about categories of people you tend to strip out context right sure and that's sort of what i'm trying to speak to and so then the, what I was trying to use as a segue there was that maybe the usefulness of identity is to see in what ways it can be overcome or moved past or deviated from and to have it as this marking point that then is moved off from rather than as yeah. an end in itself. Yeah, I tend to disagree with that because I think that it's important to say um, uh, doing compares and contrasts is part of language and part of relationships and is good on its own terms rather than that it's uh, good because we can get past it. So, so for instance, if we sit down and have a conversation about manhood and, and what it means to be man and, and, and um, for, the, for a context for that conversation, uh, I, I saw a Facebook post earlier this week that was, an, um, uh, that was a male person from... Uh, an anarchist male person who basically made a statement proclaiming that they don't like men very much and that they much prefer <laughs> associating their social time with women. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of making making light of the comment because it, it seemed like such a sort of, like a pickup line. It's it's a total dude move. It's a total dude move. <laughs> and, and, um, and that person and the people who then responded to them, other men, with the same sort of tone, um, you know, sort of, they, I like... Like, aesthetically, I am not like those people. That is true. But also, I just, I really question the whole premise of that conversation, especially because, of course, it invited a response from a woman basically saying, you can say that because you have the privilege to say that. So basically, it was like two stupid positions <laughs> fighting fighting with each other in this, you know, faux conversation that to some extent was a reflection of... Anyways, the whole situation was really silly to me. But... It's really differently silly for the two of us to be having us as two male gendered people to, to to be reflecting on this Facebook conversation versus me talking about it with a person who is not male bodied. Mm-hmm. And and so to me, 
all that loving nuance, that's the interesting part. That's the sinew that makes good conversations and challenging issues. So when we talk about identity politics, for me, what makes identity politics not interesting is the fact that it the appears to be false. right. It appears to be motivated with political movements and with with some sort of story about how a group of people can win in the existing social order. Mm-hmm. And whereas, to, for me, you know, a person who is one sixteenth Cherokee. Um, who has no conception of nativeness, but who calls themselves Native American because of the blood quanta, talking to another Native person that, and myself, that's an interesting conversation. And it's interesting because it's about identity, how you wear it in your body, how you wear it in public, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say when I say using identity as a marking point uh, and then the interesting or meaningful parts being how deviation happens, I'm not trying to say that it can be completely obfuscated or thrown away entirely. And I think, yes, there's a shallow sort of analysis that says, now that I've sufficiently critiqued patriarchy, I am no longer a man. Uh, I'm just a human being, and now I can move through the world however I please, having shed this uh, burden that I have as an oppressor. But rather that... I think there are identities that we might wear at certain times and then discard. And this is something that we actually talked about in the identity discussion groups. So, for example, an important part of my politicization was being vegan. And I was vegan for seven years. I was very strict. I was not, uh, I, I frowned upon the vegans who would cheat for ice cream and this kind of thing. And for me at the time, I... When I first adopted it, I vaguely believed, I guess, in some sort of consumer politic or the idea that uh, in order to be radical, one should be very disciplined. And looking back, I can see that it was silly for all these reasons. However, I do think that was an important part for me to develop this sort of adversarial orientation toward the culture that I was in. And after a few years, I didn't believe most of the reasons I had started doing it, but I kept doing it because I liked that it was a kind of Mm self-discipline. And then eventually I decided that even that was, was not worth my time for various reasons, but that was something that I picked up and wore for a while and then discarded. And I think it, it was a good process. And I think the identities that are not chosen in that way, but that we wear all the same, there is a kind of, I think, process that one can do with this, with the the gender identity as well of you know, coming to grips with the various ways that it is controlling your behavior, controlling your body movement, controlling your the way that you have conversations with people, and I had that same kind of stage of trying to really aggressively resist those things and police my behavior and analyze why people acted toward me in certain ways, and then you know you come up against certain limits and realize that regardless of how much I change my own behavior, I can't change completely the way that people perceive me and that sort of thing. So you come up against certain limits there, but I still think that's a, a meaningful process to go through. But know the difference in what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And and I'm, I'm going to say it more bluntly than I would say it normally. You're talking about you problems. Mm-hmm. Individuated yeah, LME totally. problems. Totally. I'm talking about, for lack of better language... A, social, a set of social relationships mm-hmm. and, and a vision about what, how I think social relationships should look. Mm-hmm. 
and those are really different perspectives and and orientations. Mm-hmm. And and again, this is why identity is so confusing because it's again, it's something you wear in your body, but it's also something you live in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you reconcile that? And especially in the context of sort of an intolerable political scene like like we have in the Bay Area, you know, that means basically you get what, you, what we have now, which is sort of a shit show of a different agendas. Mm-hmm. And this is why, in general, I would choose to avoid most of these people who have really shitty agendas because even the best conversation you can have with them is, is sort of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you know... I mean, I, I was trying to touch on the social construction aspect and what I was saying, but yeah, I think it when, when I was talking about the, you know, the way that I'm going to have certain kinds of conversations with people and certain I'm going to have certain advantages and disadvantages because of how I look and how I move. Um, but, yeah, I think it. what you're trying to do is emphasize the fact that no matter how much of this sort of personal overcoming that you engage in, it's probably going to have pretty minor effect on the way that people treat you. And so you're still going to have those same basic limitations yeah. in the conversations you can have. I mean, I, I uh, there, there is a way in which... I could measure, like, I like the idea of having some sort of meeting of the minds with other people who have biracial experiences. And um, many years ago, one of the first sort of like APOC groups in North America was a group that I was a part of here in the Bay Area called RACE. I stood for um, Radicals. I can't even remember something, some sort of anti <laughs> Well, I actually hated the acronym because originally the E stood for um, equality. So, <laughs> um, you were against equality at this uh, point. We, it was against equality at that point. So when when we all um, met each other, the 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 great success of the group was that it, that it was an APOC group, which already sort of had a lot of the verbiage of of the kind of identity politics that we're talking about. But we, as a local group of APOC type people, were almost entirely mixed people, huh. yeah. and uh, oh, very few people had sort of like singular racial identities. Yeah. And those people, um, well, and one of them was like <laughs> the most laid back person in the group by far in terms of this type of ideological perspective, and the other person was the most generically militant by far. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and both of them are public personalities, so I'm not mentioning the names. But, <laughs> <laughs> and so I mean, you're bringing this up, and that seems like a rich example. Yeah. What What do you think the group's orientation would be toward these kinds of questions? Or was there was there a very mixed opinion? Was there? Well, I would kind of... say a lot of the group reflected the thing I said, which is, um, like, there weren't a lot of straight. There were only a few straight identity politics people in that group, and. Uh, and some, like Lorenzo, we did uh, some big events with Lorenzo, and he more or less denounced the group, but me specifically, but denounced the group after we did the events for him. <laughs> Basically for not subscribing to his his ver- vision of what a, a racial-type race, racial group should be doing and thinking about. We can move on. Okay. Um, it seems appropriate to transition... Um, a few episodes ago, we were talking about uh, a blogger and podcaster by the name Bennett Freeman, yep. who responded to your indigenous anarchism, mm-hmm. and you were saying the issues that you had with what he was saying, 
and I sort of paused and wanted to jump in, and then I thought, oh, we have a lot of shit to talk about, and I don't feel like getting into this. But I did want to follow up with you, if you'll indulge me. Um, will you Go indulge ahead. Me? Yeah, okay. Yeah, So one of your responses was that, so you were put prescribing to Bennett uh, an egoist analysis. I think he probably would reject that, but it came across more or less that way. And he was saying that uh, he didn't see how it was meaningful, rewarding, meant an honest relationship to... So uh, I should back up. Your assertion in the indigenous anarchism piece is that one of the reasons that so few indigenous people would call themselves anarchists is that many anarchists want to reject racial and cultural identity categories, mm. um, which actually isn't maybe so much true now as it was at the time that you were writing. But, uh, and, and his response was to say, I'm not being honest with my analysis if I acknowledge this because that, that category is a kind of geist or a kind of spook mm -hmm. or specter. Mm -hmm. And your response was that this kind of analysis is yet another way that a colonial mindset is undermining the legitimacy of native identity. And uh, do you think that's fair? Okay. What I'm saying? I, I can accept it for now. I mean, okay. the, the way in which you're, you're describing it is so different than what I said that I barely well, then, see the then connection. Jump in. Yeah. No, no, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, uh... Well, well, it's kind of hard to go forward if you're, if you're saying I already reject your premise. Well, I, I want to hear the question. Okay, okay. So the question is, the question is multiple questions, and it, the first one is that can an analysis like that be intrinsically associated with a culture like a European culture, or is it only contingently associated with that culture? It happens to be that one of the people who's mm. espoused that kind of analysis was a German. Oh, that's funny. But other people have espoused those kinds of analyses. I mean, I would say that. Certain Taoists were saying very similar things. Certain Buddhists were saying similar things about about Geist, about identity categories. Well, and so the, the difference is, while I might be able to to hear their their words and see how they're similar to the to, to the German, mm -hmm. um, in general, I have no understanding of what that looks like in the context that those words were spoken in. Mm -hmm. So I would never say, like. Um, yeah, so so you're sort of echoing this sort of um, uh, if we evaluate cultural different cultures equally and do some math, we can see that the, all three cultures are saying the same thing. I'm saying that I don't. It's hard for me to understand where you're coming from by saying that um, because a certain person 160 years ago, Stirner, yeah, espoused this idea. And it's, it's part of his analysis that to have an analysis that rejects the uh, more or less hard and fast identity categories in an anarchist way, I, I don't see why that... Because you, you're besmirching it by saying this is a European way of undermining native identity. And I'm saying it happens that one person who espoused this kind of analysis was European... But why does that mean that the analysis then carries some sort of colonial taint, necessarily? 
Uh, yeah, I'm a little con- I'm a little confused about where you're going with mm-hmm. with this, but I, but I guess what I will say, um, if your counter to to what I'm saying is to basically point to other cultures that you're not a part of, mm-hmm. and that you've never been a part of, and that you know very little about, other than words that were put to paper, if if your basically counter is to say, look, look, a Buddhist said something really similar. Look, so, Hindus, Hinduist people say something very similar, and and that's that's where I'm getting at the at the European mindset. And I do think that, that this is a, this perhaps is a place where we're going to strongly disagree, because I basically think that, think that there is something that is particular to the victorious colonial mindset of the European that basically says that we can evaluate all cultures equally as long as ours is on top. My only purpose in pointing to it is to say that it seems to me contingent, as in not necessary, that this idea cropped up at a certain time and place, and that what is the repugnant aspects of the the European colonial mindset are themselves geist, right? It's racial superiority, it's enlightenment, the the need to spread enlightenment values. And so to say, I don't like the... and so to say an anarchist analysis that is is not heavily oriented around cultural or racial identity and rejects them as Geist is gross because it's European. So so again, this whole Geist Sternth part, I'm not sure I feel like you're assigning this to me because I, I which is not true. I don't accept that. And and I so I'm I don't, saying but I, I don't identify with, with the language that you're using to describe your point of view. Yeah. So okay. I, so I don't maybe I'm misunderstanding your point of view, which seemed to say I reject that analysis because it's it what analysis? Pl- I okay. <laughs> no, we're dumbing it down because people like me. <laughs> but I'm laughing because I feel like I was right to say let's pause if you don't accept the premise, and you're like, no, keep going, and now we're coming well, no, because I didn't understand why okay. you were saying so, all the words you were saying. Okay, so what I'm saying is that. What Bennett Freeman said in response to your piece was to say, I, I don't want an analysis that is um, like very much validating, very much uh, has a realist perspective on culture and racial identity, uh-huh. because that's Geist. And I and reject that, Geist. And that, that's, I don't buy that. Okay. But your response at the time, if I understood it, was <laughs> to say, that analysis, the anti-Geist analysis, yeah. is yet another European colonial project that's undermining Correct. native identity. Okay, I would still and, stand by that. Okay, great. And so I was saying, isn't the European colonial identity actually heavily predicated on these Geists, these, these specters of racial superiority and racial realism? Uh, in the need to spread enlightenment values, which are the, which are the human good? the um, white man's burden, the manifest destiny to spread across. Like, this is all, these are huge specters, the the importance of the nation-state. I know, but we've, so, we've obscured all these specters to such a great degree that to, to speak to them as, a, as if, I mean, almost anyone is not going to believe, quote-unquote, these, these term, this terminology and this sort of word wording that you're using here. These were great criticisms of people in the 19th century, but it doesn't feel like it's, it's modern. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is sort of one of the reasons why people you know talk about gentrification so much because it's you know a more modern way of talking about all of those sort of ideas and principles that you're talking about. So so I guess why I, I just rank with all of this this verbiage is because it's it's it reminds me a lot of of building spa- um, uh, ancient naval boats inside of bottles. Mm-hmm. Like it's a great way to make really neat little boats. And to and to exercise a certain sort of like artistic crafting, you know, of, of of delicate proportion and all of the rest. But it doesn't seem like a particularly good way to describe, I guess, my own perspective or the world that I live in or the people that I interact with. Or to put it another way, I think all all that you're like what you're saying is maybe fine. I exactly, I don't exactly <laughs> get enough to say that it's totally fine. But I'm not just talking about ideas. I'm talking about ideas plus my experiences on the ground, plus my experiences with people who engage in these conversations. And the one thing that you have to, like, I, I was trying to talk talk about this in the in the prior segment also. The delicate dance that a white man has to say, and, and I would say that this is also true. That the, the dance that I have to say if I'm in a room full of people who don't know who I am, mm-hmm. right? They perceive me as a white man, so mm-hmm. I have this. I do have the same sort of issue, is that when you speak authoritatively about other people's experiences, people are going to get upset. Sure. And so, if people, but that's a separate issue. If people experience their experience as a black man or a native man, or 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 woman, or if they experience themselves in in a, in a, a particular way, your lack of sensitivity towards that is is going to get a response. Mm-hmm. And, and and in the case of Bennett Freeman. You know the thing that he 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 sort of his his first principle is he doesn't use the guy's language, but his first principle is that there are no races, mm-hmm. which in the North American context is the same thing as saying you're colorblind. Mm-hmm. We all know why and how people respond to to statements that people are colorblind. It begins with an eye roll. It, it ends with a fuck you, or a punch. But right. I think that. Uh, I do think that's a bit of a straw man of the analysis. To say that I don't endorse uh, huge categories of people as real things does not mean I don't endorse individuals who have particular experiences that might be really bad or heavily informed by the fact that these socially constructed um, specters are believed in to varying degrees and in varying ways by most people. And so it's not to say it's all in your head. I mean, that's to say, oh, it's merely all in your head and I'm colorblind and I've moved beyond is not, I think, giving an honest take to the analysis. Oh, I totally do. How How is it not? Because... What do you think he's actually saying, if it's not that? I'm I'm not going to speak for him because I'm not him. I know, but Uh, you're already using the Geist language. I mean, like, so you're saying that all Geists are equal and Geists are wonderful. Geist, 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 (laughs) Geist? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to to uh, to say that I think real individual human beings are more real than categories, conceptual categories that are imagined is not to say that because we live in a world that is dominated, and I, I would say totally is dominated by these phantoms, even though you're saying, uh, oh, no one really believes that anymore. Um, the fact that those exist is going to heavily affect individuals' lives. And to, I think it would be crazy for me to to go up to someone and say, hey, I know that you're a person of color, but, you know, 
that's not a real category. And so uh, the experiences that you've had that have been informed by that, they weren't even real experiences. I mean, no one is saying that. That's a crazy person's position. Ben, that's Bennett's position. I don't think that, would, that he would endorse that. I mean, the we point. should quote from it then. I mean, they, they they participated in in one of the A News threads on this on this point where they basically said that they're they're the big, this big long form article they're writing is basically about how stupid racial categories are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I'm going to say this one more time, and then we might just have to agree to disagree. I think having an analysis that rejects certain spectral categories does not necessarily entails saying that there are no consequences to those categories. That because something is because we have socially constructed um, I, I, We're not disagreeing about what we're disagreeing about are the consequences of, of what it is that we're talking about. Like, so, f- so for instance, I'm saying that in, in a social fabric that sort of denouncing other people's premises mm-hmm. is rude mm-hmm. and in especially in the context of the the Bay Area is seen as politically toxic. But this is the difference between what your analysis is and how you talk to people. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. But we're talking about talking about people. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about abstract political positions because mm-hmm. as far as that goes, I don't have one. I mean, this is part of that question of, of nihilism. Like, if if my, if the nihilist premise is that revolution is impossible, that means that when I hang out with revolutionaries, I'm not doing politics with them. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something else. I'm doing something that looks like a social milieu, for sure. And 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 so it so it means that because I'm on their stomping ground, I have to accept a lot of premises that I, that I don't actually accept personally and that and that my own preferences are are kind of against but i'm you know like because i'm active in a radical political space where i don't agree with the core assumptions of the of that space mm-hmm. it means that my, our negotiation is on this really different level and 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 so i guess i mean it sounds like i'm i'm sort of defending the the you know what i actually feel like is a reactionary politics in in the, in the bay area but but I do, uh, but I do think that this, but this, this is sort of where the metal meets the road on this question of uh, of what does what's the difference between identity and <laughs> conversations around you're driving something with metal wheels. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the rubber meets the road. That's fine. But but it it does bring us back to like, you know, um, Bennett's talking about an article called Indigenous Anarchism. Mm-hmm. If you don't accept the, pre- the premise that that something cold indigenous exists then why are you in the conversation in other words you have to respect the host on some level and so if i go into into a, into a meeting at the colombo social center i have to accept that black nationalism exists and the and the people around me are all black no matter what i see in front of me and and so yeah i guess so so to me that is really important i don't know mm-hmm. i mean where do, where do you think the disagreement is here I think we're having a disagreement where I'm talking about having the perfect analysis and you're talking about having the effective way to communicate with people. And for me, it, it comes first, the analysis. And then I think about my context and I think 
I, I don't think we heavily disagree. No, but that's interesting. Uh-huh. And and I, um, if I were going to trust someone to have the perfect analysis, yeah. <laughs> you'd be on the short list. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk again. The, the theme of this uh, episode is uh, imagination again. And uh, we're going to talk uh, about this article that was in the newest issue of Black Seed by Gerald Visner. And for those yeah. of you who have not spent a lot of time with him, uh, neither have I. And he's sort of a, <laughs> of a, of a new person that I'm being introduced to, or a new writer, and, but he has been active for 30-odd years. This article we're, we're going to talk about is from the early 80s. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look, and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin Traveling in the world of my creation What we'll see will defy Explanation And so I, I want to pause and and say I'm wondering how we're going to talk about this story because I want to make specific reference to passages and events in the story and for people who haven't read it I mean are we just saying get a copy of Black Sea? Yeah absolutely Okay. so I guess the last well the article is called Spacious Tree Line in Words it's kind of a story but it's also kind of an essay Mm -hmm. there's lots of uh, drop quotes of of European writers Um, somehow they they come into play but um, but it's about it's something different. Go on. Well, yeah, actually, I, that was the first thing I was going to say about it was um, that they're right off the bat in this. There are two, I think, major provocations, and one is that he f- frames the whole story slash article with a quote from Derrida. <laughs> yeah, totally. Very <laughs> and, strange. And then moves on to quote from Barthes, mm-hmm. and so I, I think very often we think of an indigenous perspective or something the whatever token uh, indigenous perspective would be seen as at odds with this kind of highly european thought i mean these are these are big names in Mm post-structuralism and 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 for those of you who sort of don't know the some of the context of this around the same time that this was written you you know russell means uh gave this incredible speech uh, in front of a large crowd and it's been reprinted a thousand times but but the premise and 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 i'm to be honest with you, this premise has been very important in my own political growth. The premise of the article is that uh, is that Russell Means basically says, I wouldn't write this. I wouldn't write this essay that I'm going to talk to about about natives. Uh, the only way in which it makes sense to share it with you is because it is uh, a transcription of, of a speech that I gave. Because natives uh, use speech to communicate ideas. They don't use dead paper. They don't use sort of like high theory uh, it, frozen words, right? Frozen words. It, it it basically it's it's a living culture and it's a culture that's a storytelling culture, which and, exactly comes back to your your focus earlier on context, where the article necessarily almost necessarily is decontextualized because it's being picked up by different people in different places, different times. Yep. And you know. I I mean I guarantee it's the sort of book that's been reprinted in you know four or five different books 
uh, read by four or five dis- different disciplines in the academy with basically different motivations with, with each of the reprints. And to me, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas, I mean, this author, Gerald Visner, seems to be really trying to frame his piece with this Derrida yeah. uh, bit that is actually all about how wonderful the written word is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, major provocation there. And then the second major one is that um, he writes, quote, the word Indian appears in lowercase letters in these stories, which frames the whole piece, a lot of which is about actually deflating the idea of an, an essential Indian identity. Or yeah. at the very least, calling it into question. Well, the, the, I mean, this is actually another thing that I would say, and, and I think this prefigures, you know, s- since the 80s, there's lots of conversations around whether or not it's appropriate or racist to call... Uh, the native people of North America, Indians or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, and from my own experience, almost all of the natives who I talk to face to face, uh, call themselves Indians. Yeah. In other words, natives, because native culture is a humorous culture, it is fully embraced the fact that Indians are not, of course, from India at all. Mm-hmm. I was totally confused, uh, um, again, as a teenager, when I was first starting to read about these things that the American Indian movement called itself Indians. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah I, I mean, I don't hear uh, almost anyone refer to themselves as a Native, Native American or an American Indian. It's almost entirely, and yeah, Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the piece then goes on to, to talk a little bit about um, Native storytelling and then just moves into this really I, I'm wonderful, I, I urge everyone who's listening to read this piece, this wonderful series sort of of overlapping stories that it very, I think, effectively evokes a feeling of dreaming or of wandering through a dream. Um, it starts off being more or less grammatically correct, and then gradually the grammar starts to fall away, and um, there's lacks of quotation marks with the dialogue, so you get this very stream of consciousness. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's talking, and it also does a kind of breaking of the fourth wall, so completely and so repeatedly that it actually almost wraps back on itself and you get the feeling of being in a lucid dream. Um, yeah, I loved it, and we can talk about some specific parts. Yeah, yeah I mean, I guess the uh, probably a good place to start is with the sort of first character uh, that's developed in the story, which is a character named a Tulip. Mm-hmm. And basically... The uh, tulip is sort of described as as a uh, Indian man hating person, and the reason why is because of having these sort of direct and you know very classic uh, sexual assault experiences. Um, and I from Indian men, right? From Indian men, and um, and it sort of fairly accepts the the quote unquote racism of blaming Indian men for sexual assault because of the direct experience, which, of course, we know in polite society, you can't actually blame a, a racial group for the, for the uh, behavior of a particular uh, few individuals. So I just I love the, the, the sort of slashing at liberal sensibilities. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of that where characters are behaving in ways that we might think of as very inappropriate or very indecent, and it's just 
they're just presented on the face of it without any real moral evaluation from the narrator. And then, of course, we realize that as it goes on, the, the narrator is one or more of the characters. So, um, And there was a bit I love with this um, character, Tulip, where they're talking about how she doesn't like to talk about sex at all. And there's a passage here. We touch with words, but she believes that the words on sex are demeaning, metaphors from violence and domination, reductions from natural experiences, the opposites from nurturance. She demands silence in sex, restraint like birds in magical flight, control, too much control, wordless and breathless at the most ecstatic moments, not a thunderstorm in her, but a warm, hesitant rain on the cedar and fern, no more than whispers. She is not a shadow. She is the moon. And that is just such a dense, <laughs> incredibly rich passage. So, you know, you have this way of talking about what sounds like dirty talk, but mm -hmm. it's, it's not even addressed as that so much. And you have these conflicting opinions, which seem to be between her and the narrator, who we later realize is one of the characters, that, that language, which one might say a big part of imagination is the, the recombination, reconstruction of language, is this reduction of the real for her. It's this, um, this, uh, this trashing of it, this sort of bringing it down into something disgusting when it should be inexpressible, which you, know, you might say is a certain kind of anti-civ position. Sure. And then he, the narrator, turns it around by saying, but actually what you're doing is restraining yourself and imposing these controls on yourself by refusing to speak. And so that in itself is a hemming in of the natural, of the ecstatic. And so it's this incredible way to talk about the problem of the natural or the problem of language and doing it by talking about dirty talk, which I think is just amazing. And then, and then the, the third part, which is the part that I really appreciated, was that a lot of this article is sort of um, reflections on storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so, in in referring to 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 this constellation of of paragraphs, basically, um, uh, there's this line, and I, I can't find it right right away. But it's it basically says that when you tell a story, you tell the sex first, and then you tell the backseat. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I I think that's so deep, that's so <laughs> great, because basically we are all these biological things that absolutely respond to sex and, and, mm -hmm. and to the imagery and everything about sex. But to make anything about sex actually interesting and deep, you have to talk, talk, talk about the backseat. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, for any, anyone who's had sex in a car, you know, just how incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable it that is. is. How terrible it is. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I really like that, that the, the, the shifting of perspective. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, again, it's about language. It's about constraint and then it's about storytelling like fuck yeah. and then what really drives us forward is that you realize moments later that this character who is describing the character tulip in these loving almost worshipful terms and and uh talking to us the audience about his differences in opinion you realize moments later that this is a guy who has promiscuous sex with young white women and <laughs> Which also then puts the, you know, there's this whole cloud of uh, 
you know, moral reprobation that might be thrown at this person because you know, this is his life as he's gazing at this native woman that he has all these feelings for. He's you know, having this detached, one would think, promiscuous, unbridled sex with young sure. white women. And so maybe we can talk about how a few of these characters seem to be playing the role of the trickster. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And so the trickster being a, a sort of iconic character or stock character who breaks social mores, goes against codes of conduct, does what is not proper, but in some way then brings a certain kind of knowledge or acts as a foil. And it seems that we have not just one, but at least two, and I would say maybe even more than that, characters who play these roles. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's hard to go into it other than just to sort of point to it and, and let the readers find it. But again, the the powerful thing about this essay is the way in which it really does play with first and third person perspectives mm -hmm. and and um, uh, and and sort of speaks to it. And and that's that's really the part that I appreciated. Those one big thing topic I wanted to bring up here. Oh, and, and this is this is sort of a personal thing, but. But a thing that I really liked about what Visner did, and and a thing I really want to emulate in in my own storytelling, um, naming conventions are incredibly difficult to to sort of like think about and talk about and and all the rest. So, and you hear me make fun of this all the time, but you know, obviously within the anarchist circle, right, many people we know have some version of a forest name. Oh yeah, and and, <laughs> so. and you know, and additionally, you have a different name for for broadcast, and you do. This is not my legal life. name. Yes. <laughs> um, whereas Aragorn is my legal name, and um, and so that idea of like, but but obviously, it's it's a legal name that seems like it's not legal. Like if yeah, if yeah, my name were actually John, I would have a hard time being an anarchist as John. Um, and 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 for me, I would bundle this with with the package of you know the vast majority of people that we know have names that come out of the goddamn Bible. Yes. And yeah. and that's a... Including me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't know. Um, so anyways, there's a there's a thing that you can do... There's a thing that's being done in this article that's that's sort of describing people by giving them names. And, yeah, I, totally. and I love that. I mean, this is sort of like the role of the nickname. But, you know, most nicknames we know and see are just so boring. Like, you know, for me, it's really important to, when I think about a nickname for someone, to really, like, how do you essentialize someone outside of their stupid-ass Christian name? And in a way that sort of plays with, yeah, that plays with them. I mean, the only example that I'm thinking of right now is we had this, uh, we had this character in our study group who, over the years, just really earned this nickname, Intense John. And that's and that's because that's who I think they you were. Gave like, this person that name, did you? Right. I mean, but but they really grew into it. Like they, whether they ex accepted the name or not, they really owned it. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so there's a, another character named Pink Stallion in yeah. the uh, in the story. Yeah. Um. So you didn't want to seem to get into the trickster bit, and I didn't know if that was because you thought it was too plot centric, or yeah. Okay, that's fine. I was going to talk about the people at the end. Go for it. Yeah. Um, so at the end of this of this story, and I, I guess I want to really throw up a, a sort of spoiler warning and say, you know, if you're still listening to this and you haven't read this, I really think you should stop listening to it because I'm going to talk about the end of it. And that's maybe you could say that one of the most inflammatory parts of the whole story, and it's about... Um, 
this group of people who are traveling and they come to a town and um, at least I think they only specify that one of them is a native woman and she is going before this group of um, white hunters and horse breeders and talking about her native identity and they really put her up to the task of saying tell us about your people and it, you know it's almost in this hokey essentializing way and she is trying to assert how how she uh, as a native person is is fundamentally different from white people and talking about different values and talking about how they have a greater connection to ecology and that sort of thing and the white people initially are being this sort of unruly audience that's stopping her and saying, well, wait, uh, that doesn't seem right, and can you explain this more? And she gets frustrated and decides to stop talking to them, and then they put her back up to it and give her a lot of attaboys, and she doubles down and asserts, you know, no, we really are different. And these people are some sort of you know, strange group that hate narcissism and what they call terminal values. Um, and what you realize as the story goes on is that they were trying to test her to see if she would double down and embrace all of their praise and embrace this sort of essentializing identity and that because she did they poison her and the kind of strange moral fable here is that she gave into this this sort of narcissism and was undone by it and i was wondering if you thought that you could say this whole group of white people played a trickster role because they've done really this heinous thing. Oh, that's funny. They, they've done a really heinous thing, which is murdering this person just because of her opinions. <laughs> and uh, certainly massively breaking with with uh, you know what we would consider any kind of decency, but in doing so, they at least see themselves as having taught her this incredibly harsh lesson. That... Yeah, I I <clears throat> think that I probably would take exception to calling them trickster um there's a lot of cultural criticism around the term trickster and sort of the pro and the con of it you know at the heart of the trickster is a world creator okay and one who fucks with assumptions okay. perhaps about the world uh-huh. um in other words that i you know again I, I don't i don't think it's as simple as this but but the give and take of of the trickster is, is rather than just take yeah, yeah. I, I mean uh, I am often called a trickster. Yeah, I thought by, you would probably. Yeah, I mean, I, and, <laughs> I thought you'd probably like the and um, identity. Uh, yeah, but and and you know, I I, I can't imagine I'm ever going to sort of embrace that as like a like a thing, like the trickster publisher or something <laughs> like that. But but I really identify with with the with the way in which. The way in which I show that I care is different than the assumptions are around showing that I care. It's not true. You gave me a hug yesterday. I was accepting the premise of, of the emotional moment we were in. The but but in general, right? People are, uh, experience me as being sort of mean, harsh, and harsh, yeah. and and maybe saying truths that that. Uh, yeah, that are maybe unnecessary to say out loud in polite society. Sure. Um, but anyways, I, I bring that up because, like, I think a, a topic, and this is my topic, and I, I, I don't know a more nuanced way to say it, but I feel like the trickster, you might, you'll survive your experience yeah, with the sure. trickster. Yeah, sure, sure. 
the genocider, yeah. the the one who destroys the different, mm-hmm. you don't survive that encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or you if if you do survive it, it's because you you've joined. Mm-hmm. Although these these murderers in this case were predicating it on saying you're actually not different and you no, just no, accepted right. the, totally no yeah. but but, the, but you can imagine in the context of colonization sure. when the priests come and and they and, oh, yeah. and you start to do religious uh, compare comparative religious studies with with those who you're intending to change yeah that's part of the line sure like you're already there mm-hmm. i i recently had a conversation with my aunt who basically said that the reason why the catholics were so successful in the context of of michigan was because the great spirit in the context of the Michigan religion prior to contact, was close enough. Non-atheist. And so you can imagine yeah. this conversation happening where the where the priest is like, "It's really close." Yeah. And and if you just put on these trappings and if you just join us, mm-hmm. you live. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you walk to Oklahoma. Right. Like yeah. you know, so you can kind of see how, especially in the context of the Catholic Church, right? The Catholic Church is incredibly intelligent when it comes to how to co-opt other cultures and to keep. Adapting and yeah, and so there's something in here that feels pretty resonant. <laughs> yeah, there. No, I'm aware. There uh, were definitely other things that I wanted to get into, mm-hmm. but yeah. we could just. I mean, I, we could. I think we could probably talk about imagination another time or yeah. something like that. Uh, it was just more about other s- fictional stories that have inspired our anarchism. Um, but I think we will stop for now and say once again. If you have suggestions, feedback, criticism, anything, please email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org. And we will be back next week with a topic that we have yet to determine. That's true. (laughs) Okay, have a great day.